Welcome to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to science writer Dan Falk about his new book, The Science of Shakespeare. William Shakespeare lived in a very exciting time for science, but did it influence his work? This is something that scholars debate about. Today, we'll talk about some of Shakespeare's possible references to scientific theories, some interesting name dropping, how Shakespeare is like Carl Sagan, and a theory that Hamlet is an allegory for the historical debate over whether the Earth or the Sun is at the center of the solar system. All that today on the Physics Central podcast. The English writer Ben Jonson said that William Shakespeare was not of an age, but for all time, meaning that people can find truth in his work no matter where or when they are living. Shakespeare is so highly lauded because he is, in a word, universal. Which is interesting because during Shakespeare's lifetime, the way people thought about the universe was changing drastically. Shakespeare lived from 1564 to 1616, right in the thick of what we now call the scientific revolution. This was when modern science as we know it was born. People started relying on evidence-based reasoning to draw conclusions about the natural world, and they hadn't done that before. It's not a stretch to believe that even though Shakespeare is universal, that he was also a product of his environment, that the ideas present during his lifetime would have had an impact on how he saw the world and thus how he wrote about it. Is it possible that the scientific revolution not only gave us modern science, but also influenced Shakespeare's take on humanity? So that's, that's sort of the big question, right? And that's, that's what everybody wants to know. Uh, when they find out I've been writing about this this subject. This is Dan Falk. He's a freelance science journalist, a regular contributor to CBC Radio. He's the author of three popular science books that deal largely with physics. And the most recent of them is The Science of Shakespeare, where he explores that big question, was Shakespeare aware of the scientific revolution? And if so, did it influence his work? Falk and I talked about it over lunch in a cafe in New York City. We have Shakespeare, you know, being alive during this very, very interesting period, a very intellectually uh, stimulating period. There were, of course, very traditional ways of looking at things. There was astrology and magic of all kinds, witchcraft, uh, that is to say people accusing each other of being witches. And these things were very much around, uh, very, very pervasive in Shakespeare's time, but also... Copernicus had published his book, the heliocentric version of the cosmos, saying that uh, the planets go around the sun as opposed to having everything go around the earth, which was the old view of the ancient Greeks. So that was published 20 years before Shakespeare was born. Vesalius, at the same time, published his book about human anatomy, the first sort of modern book about the human body, again, sort of um, uh, critiquing some of the old ideas of, uh, of the ancient Greek thinkers. So there were these new ideas uh, in the air, and there's Shakespeare, you know, there he is, right in the middle of it. So I think that that's my entry point. It's like, well, you know, he, he must have had something to say about this. But even if, if even if he doesn't say anything directly, it's still a good entryway into this period of, of science and this period of discovery. So did Shakespeare talk directly about any of these new scientific ideas? The traditional view is that Shakespeare doesn't tackle these ideas head on, um, and as compared with, for example, other writers of his time, like John Donne, 
or John Milton. John Milton lives a little bit later, and they they tackle it. You know, they confront the so-called new philosophy very, very directly. The traditional view is that Shakespeare doesn't um, do it in quite the same way. But having said that, ideas are, certainly keep popping up. Shakespeare did have a very different style than Milton and Dunn, so maybe he just talked about these things in more subtle ways. There seem to be examples of places where Shakespeare may have referenced specific scientific ideas. For example, atomism. This was actually introduced by the ancient Greeks, and it's just generally the idea that matter consists of these basic building blocks. This idea was actually going through a bit of a renaissance during Shakespeare's lifetime. There's a passage in Romeo and Juliet where Mercutio is talking to to Romeo about uh, Queen Mab. It's the Queen Mab speech about this little Celtic uh, goddess who goes into your brain through your nose while you're sleeping and affects your your dreams. And he he uses the phrase, uh, a coach drawn by a team of, of atomi or a team of little atomi, something like that. The theory of the Celtic goddess causing dreams is still unconfirmed, but the Greeks were correct in their general idea that matter is made of tiny building blocks. Now, of course, it would be centuries before atomic physics as we know it today would appear. It's important to note, though, that in Shakespeare's day, atomism was compared to atheism, and atheism was considered a form of treason. So this was a scientific idea that was definitely pushing up against the old paradigm. So it's just, it's just kind of poetry. It's just kind of metaphorical. It doesn't mean that Shakespeare was like sort of into atomic theory. But it does show that he was willing to use whatever was sort of in the air inter, you know, as part of the, the discourse. And he could use it for, in this case, sort of poetic effect or in some cases for a, sort of a narrative, a narrative device. Another example comes up in Hamlet. Shakespeare seems to make mention of the idea that the universe could be infinite. One early appearance of this idea came from a neighbor and friend of Shakespeare's named Thomas Diggs. Thomas Diggs was updating an almanac that had originally been written by his father, uh, Leonard Diggs, and he included a chapter, a new chapter, sort of saying how great the Copernican theory was, Uh, And then he included this diagram showing the stars seeming to go out possibly to infinity. So Copernicus's diagram doesn't do that. It just kind of ends at the end of the solar system. And certainly the Aristotelian diagrams that you see uh, show like a sphere of fixed stars, but that's it. Like, so there'd be nothing beyond other than maybe, you know, angels or something like that. But in Thomas Diggs's diagram, you actually have the stars kind of going and going. So you've got this idea of maybe an infinite universe. So this is new. This seems to come sort of hand in hand with Copernicanism. So in Hamlet, I think it's Act 2, Scene 2, you have this passage where Hamlet is talking with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and he's saying, well, I could be a king of infinite space if it were not for the fact that I have bad dreams. So, king of infinite space, it's a very unusual phrase, and scholars have sort of toyed with it. Nobody seems to have a really good explanation for why that line is there, and it's not a phrase that's commonly used. Uh, On the few other occasions where Shakespeare mentions the infinite, he's not talking about spatial extent, he's talking about some other sense of the word infinite. So, that's quite interesting, and a few people uh, have pointed to Thomas Diggs, and maybe this is an allusion to this this view of the infinite universe, which sort of by definition has to be a Copernican universe. Of all Shakespeare's plays, Hamlet may be the most highly analyzed as a work of literature, and some theories suggest that it may also be the most science-packed play that Shakespeare ever wrote. There just seem to be a lot of weird coincidences in Hamlet. 
For example, there are a few items in the play that seem as though they could be making direct reference to Tycho Brahe, who was one of the early instigators of the scientific revolution. Tycho Brahe was a Danish astronomer, uh, pre-telescopic. So he's generally considered to be the greatest of the observers to have lived before the invention of the telescope. Uh, The king liked his work so much that he gave Tycho Brahe his own island uh, to do his work from. This is an island in the strait that separates um, Denmark from Sweden. In those days, it was all part of the, the Danish kingdom. And he built this grand observatory. The island lies just off shore of a town with a castle in it. And it's not just any town in any castle. It's it's Kronberg Castle. The town is called, in Danish, Helsingor, if I'm pronouncing it right. In English, Elsinore. So this is the setting that Shakespeare chose for Hamlet. He didn't have to. Um, there were sort of medieval or, you know, there were earlier versions of, of the, the story that became Hamlet. But they just refer to Denmark. They don't specifically say Elsinore. So this was Shakespeare's original idea to bring it to Elsinore for, you know, and it would be interesting to know why he did that. The coincidences continue. And then we look at the names in, the, the character names in Hamlet, and there's a long list of them, you know, Claudius, Ophelia. Um, these are all very vaguely classical-sounding, more or less Latin-sounding names, um, very traditional. And then you get to the two courtiers, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and these names really leap out at you because they, they sound very Danish, right? So... Where did Shakespeare get the idea to use these names? Now, Shakespeare never visited Denmark, although it is worth mentioning that some of his fellow actors did. Some people from his acting company did perform at Elsinore, so you've got that. But now we go back to our friend, the astronomer Tycho Brahe. Uh, He was making all these observations and then sending copies of it to his colleagues across Europe, and that includes sending them to Thomas Diggs and to other scientists uh, in England. And so he's got this stack of papers, and then at the top he has this engraving of himself. It's a professional engraving, and the portrait shows him in the middle. But then around the outer perimeter, you've got uh, the family crests of his various relatives. So when you then now take a close look at this engraving, um, you see two names that actually look quite familiar. You see Rosencrantz, and you see Guildenstern. And that's pretty interesting. So... Did Shakespeare just hear about that from, you know, friends who had visited Denmark? That's possible. But there is still yet another possibility, and I think it's actually very plausible, and that is that Shakespeare saw the engraving. This this engraving was making the rounds, so maybe Shakespeare actually saw the Tycho Brahe engraving, and if he did, maybe he liked the sound of those two names, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. There's no way to know for sure if Shakespeare just liked the sound of these names or if he was intentionally name-dropping. But in exploring this question, it's important to know that the scientific revolution wasn't just about science. It introduced some very deep philosophical questions to the general public. For example, the fact that the Earth is not the center of the universe means that the heavens do not revolve around us. So that shakes loose a lot of old ideas about fate and destiny and God. So it wouldn't be surprising if those ideas made their way into the literature of the day. And one person that Falk talked to believes that Shakespeare very deliberately made these references and that the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern coincidence is just the tip of the iceberg. One of the people I spoke with as I was researching the book was 
uh, a retired astronomer uh, named Peter Usher, who has sort of a whole elaborate theory about this, that everybody in Hamlet sort of stands in, that is, everybody in the play, Hamlet, kind of stands in for a real-life figure, either an, uh, an astronomer or a philosopher, either from Shakespeare's time or from ancient times. In this allegorical reading of Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark himself represents the Copernican model of the solar system. This is the one with the sun at the center and all the planets orbiting around it. And we know now that this is the true model of the solar system. So in this allegory, even though Hamlet dies, the idea lives on. The villain of Hamlet is the old Ptolemaic model in which everything orbits around the Earth. Now, the Ptolemaic model is named after Claudius Ptolemy. Claudius. The villain in Hamlet is named Claudius. So is that just a coincidence? We may never know for sure. So, so that's all very interesting. But as I say, you know, Peter Usher's theory, mm, you know, you may, you may want to take it with a, with a grain of salt. It's, it's very interesting. And, and this allusion to, to the, you know, I mentioned the um, king of infinite space. Is this alluding to Thomas Diggs, who Thomas Diggs was a Copernican? You know, are, are we getting a glimpse of what Shakespeare actually thought about the universe? Well, that's, that's a hard one to answer. But you can't ignore it all. You, you just have to figure out what sort of story do you want to tell about it. So at the, at the extreme end, you know, Shakespeare is, is a polemicist arguing in favor of Copernicus and doing it all via, you know, secret little messages in, in the play. Or at the other end, well, you know, he just needed some names, needed a location, and there was, you know, a Danish astronomer to, to the rescue to provide those things for him. So once again, the effect of the scientific revolution on Shakespeare's thinking and his writing might not be found in specific references to scientific ideas. Instead, it might appear in his general viewpoint about the relationship between humans and the cosmos. And Shakespeare definitely has opinions on that. It can usually be found in his discussions about astrology. So astrology comes up often in Shakespeare's writings. And in different ways. So sometimes it's just the way the characters uh, talk to each other. But in a play like King Lear, you have sort of a, a, very, a very interesting conflict, or I should say contrast, between uh, worldviews. You've got Gloucester saying uh, these late eclipses of the sun and moon portend no good to us. Um, he goes on. It's actually a very long speech. He goes on about how, you know, the bond cracked twixt son and father... Uh, you know, in cities, discord, and palaces, trees. And it's, it's a long speech where he talks about all the things that are going wrong in the world. Basically, the world is going to the dogs. And he says that there are signs of that in the heavens, and that, that can sort of explain why these terrible things are happening on Earth. So, in other words, there's some kind of intimate connection or interplay between, you know, terrestrial affairs, political affairs, family life, blah, 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 and what's going on in the heavens. That's how Gloucester sees it. But then he walks out of the room... And his illegitimate son, Edmund, starts talking and, uh, to the audience. And Edmund says the exact opposite. He says, this is the great foppery of the world, right? He says, you know, we, th things go wrong. They're basically our own fault. And we blame the stars. That's, you know, that's ridiculous. That's me paraphrasing it. <laughs> and uh, Shakespeare says it more poetically. The line goes, this is the excellent foppery of the world, that when we are sick in fortune, often the surfeit of our own behavior... 
We make guilty of our disasters, the sun, the moon, and the stars, as if we were villains by necessity, fools by heavenly compulsion, knaves, thieves, and treacherers by spherical predominance, drunkards, liars, and adulterers by an enforced obedience of planetary influence, and all that we are evil in by a divine thrusting on. He goes on to say that he is rough and lecherous, and some people would blame that on the star sign he was conceived under. But he says that he could have been born under the most virginal star in the sky, and he would still be the way he is. I think of that as a very, I know this sounds cheesy, but a very Carl Sagan-ish phrase, right? I don't want to get too carried away, because I, I appreciate that Shakespeare was not you know, the, the Carl Sagan of the Elizabethan age. But here is a character just making fun in a very powerful way, making fun of this old-fashioned, very mystical, very, um, you know, it's, it's all about astrology, it's all about mystical forces, and he's having none of it. So, so that's interesting. I think Shakespeare, I think it is quite relevant to Shakespeare's writing that he lived during this period of transition and... You know, had he lived 50 or 75 years later, well, then it would have been the world of Isaac Newton. It would have been a world of mechanical forces, of mathematical explanations. So he would have had to sort of somehow deal with all of that. And, of course, he doesn't because he lives just a little bit too soon. So, that, so that's where I think Shakespeare fits in. I think it's, he's a transitional figure, and I think it's very relevant to his work that he is this, this transitional figure. So Shakespeare was both a transitional figure representing some of the specific ideas of his day and also a universal figure whose writing spans space and time. Science is like that, too. The specifics change year after year, but science is consistent in the way it asks us to reconsider our view of the universe. You can read more about the science of Shakespeare in Dan Falk's new book, Thank you again to Dan Falk for being on the podcast. You've been listening to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more of the Physics Central Podcast. Music.